All right. So we just read Psalm 115. And in that passage we just read, it, it hit on the theme of my message for tonight, and that is idolatry. Uh, the scriptures say we should flee from idolatry, all forms of it. And as 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, we should even abstain from the appearances of idolatry and evil. Jim, last week, he really hammered against that. Uh, and I thought I'd like to add my thoughts in this message. But um, he mentioned how Dan brought idolatry into the nation of Israel and how even 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had idolatrous kings. Idolatry was a terrible sin that uh, has plagued God's people for centuries. And it's just as prevalent today, I would say, as it was back in the time before Christ. And you may be sitting there in your pew thinking, or maybe you're sitting on your, in your lazy boy on the couch watching the sermon, thinking to yourself that you're not an idolater. But I've got news for you. We all are idolaters by nature. You are, and yeah, I am too. And we are that way until the Lord personally comes to us and reveals to us who He is. That's when we look to a person and find salvation in His finished work of redemption on the cross. And even then, after we've been converted to the truth, we're still not free from idolatry. Now, we struggle against it. And we find it working in our flesh. And we who believe we have the Holy Spirit living within us, urging us to flee from idolatry. But our flesh, it craves it. It's like I'm craving a McDonald's hamburger sometimes. Our, our, our body just, our flesh just craves idolatry. And so we have this constant battle within each of our hearts and minds between true religion, that is the religion of Christ, and the desires of our flesh. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, we can admit that to ourselves and to each other. And from the time we've been little children, there has been an idol factory creating untold numbers of idols within our hearts and minds. And these idols, they can take various shapes and identities. And so what's an idol? I would say that an idol is anything that takes away our attention and the glory and honor that is due to our Lord. We may uh, value a new car or house or whatever and constantly think about how that shiny new thing may actually give us some pleasure. Even to the point of neglecting our duties to worship our Lord and be amongst God's people. If we elevate such things to such high a value, quite simply, we've erected an idol. I'm sure a new car or a new house that 
that that doesn't resemble the golden calf you you read about in scripture the the, the, the golden calf that Moses had to deal with but new cars new houses anything really they can be idols nonetheless and we don't have to overtly bow down to these things either to give them preeminence in our lives we simply have to give these things the attention they do not deserve we simply have to give these things the attention that is owed to our Lord above and there are many forms of this idolatry in America for example we see that many have turned our form of government into an idol or the, turn the politics of the day into an idol. And I, I've certainly been guilty of this. You know, watching election night coverage, thinking my, my whole life is dependent upon who's going to get be elected the president or not, instead of trusting in the Lord. And Angie can tell you all about the flaws that I have and some stories that I'm not too... I'm not really happy about, but <laughs> they're there. But uh, I've, I've elevated things to levels of importance that they should not have been. And I'm sure there are many more idols in my life that I'm quite simply not aware of. No, I'm not aware of. And the spirit idolatry that we, that we have it even causes men to fight each other to the death for control of their idols. That's why our political rivalries are so heated today. Many have turned you know, government into their religion, and so they fight and struggle to maintain control of it. And they don't want to see their religion turn from what they think is their true idol into what they think is a false idol. So that's why you see such a power struggle today. You've got a bunch of idolaters fighting with each other. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved with politics or the government or not cares what goes on in, you know, around us. Certainly these things are important. This is just merely an example, which I think really depicts the uh, idolatry that the idolatry of man quite well, and I, I think it's, that's why I brought it up. But uh, idolatry can be quite subtle too, and the you know the idolatry in this country is not just limited to the government; it could be anything. You see it in religion too. For some, it's their perceived freedom from God's sovereignty. They've erected the will of man into an idol and some will even say they worship the will of man they'll come out and tell you that for others it's statues and pictures and what orthodox and catholic religions refer to as icons others have elevated their education or their career to such an important place in their hearts in such a way that it replaces the value that should be ascribed to God and his son and his gospel. Some even place too much value upon a religious ceremony such as baptism or the Lord's Supper. They fail to realize that true Christianity is a heart issue. It's about what's inside you that matters and not the outward forms of religion or ceremonies. And baptism, while it's a command that we must obey, is simply a picture of what Christ has done for each of us. And the same is true of the Lord's Supper. Christ's uh, blood and body is symbolized in the elements of the bread and the wine. Yet, 
many have elevated these things to, to such an importance that they won't attend this church or that church uh, unless they unless the church they're considering gets the ceremonial aspect down pat. They elevate these things to, to much higher significance than they really should. And I've heard stories of people not attending churches because uh, they weren't closed communion churches. And others won't attend places because they don't like the amount of bread they were actually getting at the Lord's Supper. They weren't content with just one or two pieces or a small piece. They wanted a big piece. Or some people want a big cup that everybody drinks out of. You know, so and they won't come to our church because uh, we pass around a bunch of little individual cups. <laughs> and if these people were honest with themselves, they might admit to themselves they have turned these things into idols. And it's not wrong to try to get these things right. I'm not saying that. But to avoid worship and fellowship with God's people over these things, well, it's elevating them to a level of importance they should not have. It's fine to strive for doctrinal and practical correctness. But to the point that it causes you to avoid the people of God and to worship him, and to avoid worshiping him through regular church attendance where the true gospel is preached, well, you've crossed into error. And you find this attitude among sacramentalists uh, who believe the, the wine and the bread are the real embodiments of Christ. They say that the wine is the actual blood of Christ, or it turns into it during their ceremony. And they also say that the bread turns into the actual body of Christ. And they perceive themselves to be actually eating and drinking the actual blood and body of Christ. They aren't content with the pictures or the symbols of the elements of the Lord's Supper. They want something more. Something they can touch. Something they can see. Something they can taste and smell. Worship of God and spirit and truth is often not enough for them. And they fail to recognize that Christianity... It's not about living by sight, smell, or touch. But that true Christianity is a heart issue. And we who believe, we walk by faith, not by sight. And those that absolutely have to have something that they can see, touch, taste, or smell, well, quite frankly, I believe they're engaging in idolatry. And they are idolaters because they're elevating we're adding something we do above the most important thing, the primary issue, as I've preached before. The primary issue is always this, God and his gospel. So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. For those that don't know, that's John chapter 4. And Jesus is talking with this Sumerian woman here, and he revealed to her that, he was indeed the Messiah. But he also had some interesting things to say about worship. Jesus had already re revealed to this woman that uh, he knew all about, all about her. He knew about all who she was, and he, he knew about her five marriages. And this had to be astonishing to this woman as, he, as she heard these things. But... Uh, what might be even more astonishing, I think, is what, what Christ says here, starting in verse 19. 
the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor, at, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I might add to these words of Christ here for clarification that to worship in spirit and truth does not mean with animal sacrifices, nor with relics, nor with stained glass windows, nor with priestly garments or graven images, any of the relics of the Old Testament, all the beautiful ornate decorations of the tabernacle and the temple, the brazen serpent, the, you know, the countless sacrificing of animals, Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and priestly garbs. And all, all of this religious stuff, they were just shadows. They were shadows, types, and pictures of what was to come. And, oh yeah, what, oh yes, what they, they pointed to did indeed come. And they were all fulfilled in Christ our Messiah. And we no longer worship our God through things or relics. So why in the world would we want to return to this type of worship with shadows and pictures? We have the real thing. We have Christ. But much of religion today, it completely misses that point. They don't worship in spirit and in truth. They don't hold the gospel of Christ above everything in their lives. They're more concerned with the outward things of this life. They're more concerned with optics. Things like public politics, their career, their spouse, or their stained glass windows on a church door. And when they meet for what they call worship and they do some silly dance or rock concert up on the stage, drawing attention to themselves, and even applauding each other for their performances, they're engaged in idolatry. Or they pray to others what they claim to be by wearing a t-shirt or some other religious jewelry. Some even tattoo themselves up to try and impress each other with their supposed dead, devout lifestyle. And they literally wear the religion on their sleeves, showing off to the world their so-called piety or their claimed religion. And that's idolatry. Others parade around in fancy robes, they burn some incense or candles. And they sprinkle some of what they call holy water here and there. And their church buildings are ornate and they're beautiful. They have beautiful pictures or icons of the past saints of God. And they have the gall to call this worship. While ignoring the words of Christ to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
but we know all this stuff it, it adds up to a hill of beans and we believe we who believe we, we, we count all of this as dung it's all a trash heap of religion we who believe we worship in spirit and in truth do you remember the story well, I'm sure you do you, you all remember the story of Moses, Israel and the golden calf you know, after after receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, Moses came down off that mountain and he saw the golden calf. How ironic that as God was giving those commandments to Moses, Israel was engaged in breaking the very first commandment. And the Israelites were honoring and worshiping this idol, this, this golden calf, copying the other idolatrous religions around them, the other idolatrous nations, and this really infuriated Moses. And I'm sure you all remember that story. You know how he reacted too, right? He shattered the very tablets of God upon which God gave his commandments. But what most of us don't remember is what happened to the golden calf. What happened to the golden calf after all this? Does, does, can anybody remember that? Well, according to Exodus 3.20, Moses had the golden calf burnt in the fire. He ground it into he ground, had it grounded into powder, scattered over the water, and then he forced the Israelites to drink it. He made them drink their idol. Why? Well, the Israelites just had to have something tangible, something they could touch and see. The invisible God who delivered them from Egypt wasn't good enough for them. They saw the Lord's miracles, such as the parting of the Red Sea, but it wasn't enough. Man's craving for religion that appeals to the senses is just too strong. That's why we see the crazy charismatic movement today with people seeking signs and wonders and supernatural gifts. That's why we see the Catholic Mass with people thinking they're drinking the actual blood of Christ. And the Israelites were no different than the false Christian religions we see today. And Moses had enough of it and basically said to Israel, so you want something you can see, touch, and taste? Well, here it is. Choke on it. Uh, I'm sure he was just infuriated with it all. Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. You all remember the uh, story of the brazen serpent too, right? Moses held it up to, and told the children of Israel to look to it in order to be protected from the bites of the fiery serpents. They were to look to it and live. And this was a picture of Christ. And today we look to Christ, rest, and trust in Him. But many years later, about 550 years before the coming of Christ, King Hezekiah became an iconoclast in the tradition of Moses. And an iconoclast is one who destroys icons and idols. And we see periods of iconoclasm throughout church history, and we also see it in the scriptures. And here we see it with King Hezekiah. The Israelites wanted to turn the well-known brazen serpent of Moses into an icon, if you will. They wanted to make it a relic. They wanted to hold it amongst themselves as something honorable, to hold it up as something to venerate and even aid in their supposed worship. They even burnt incense to it. They had turned this item from Moses into an idol, and King Hezekiah just wouldn't have it. He just wouldn't. So like Moses, he ordered it to be destroyed. 
Let's read the text. Starting uh, 2 Kings 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was also Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places, and he broke the images, and he cut down the groves, and brake into pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, and Nehushtan means brass or a piece of brass. And he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Here we see Hezekiah calling this brazen serpent of Moses nothing more than a piece of brass. How about that? And I'm going to read you something that Henry Mahan had to say about this. This is from a little short bulletin article I read and that I really enjoyed. So I'll just start here. I am confident that the religious superstitious Israelites were horrified when King Hezekiah destroyed their sacred symbol which they worshipped, the serpent of brass Moses had made, calling it a worthless piece of brass. Worthless was added in by Henry. Hezekiah declared it to be of no value in the worship of God, but rather a hindrance to the worship. I can understand a person's interest in that brazen serpent. It would be extremely interesting to see it. It would be interesting to see the rod of Moses, the tables of the law, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cross on which our Lord died. But interesting is all that these things can be, certainly not inspirational, nor edifying, nor of any spiritual value, nor of any consequence where a relationship with God is concerned. These are but types, pictures, and things which the Lord used to point our faith, hope, and trust to Christ Jesus. And the knowledge, love, and worship of God, Christ is all. And I'm going to interject here. Paul stated this in Colossians 3.11 where he says, uh, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I'm continuing on with Henry's stuff here. Hezekiah shocked Israel when he called Moses' serpent a piece of brass which we may shock religion today by calling the cross on which Christ died a piece of wood, or the tomb in which he laid a hole in the ground, or the winding sheet in which he was wrapped a piece of cloth. But having served their purpose, that's all that they are. And to make them of any spiritual significance is to be in danger of idolatry. Idolatry is a subtle tool of Satan and must be avoided. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. True believers have no superstitions regarding days, hallowed places on earth, religious relics, symbols, signs, nor ancestors. 
Christ is our Sabbath, our altar, our prophet, priest, and king. And to him, and only to him, we come, bow, believe, and worship. And I agree with these words of Henry very much, uh, yet I still find my heart prone to idolatry. Why? Why is that? Do you find this is true of you? If you're honest with yourself, truly honest with yourself, you'll, you'll answer in the affirmative. It's because that's the way we are by nature. Our hearts must be purged by God himself. Our minds must be renewed with the Spirit of the Lord. Put away our fancy religious toys and playthings, because that's what they are. Our God is not a God of ritual. And if he were, then I might very well duck myself out with crosses up here on this pulpit and start burning incense right here. But God's not a God of ritual. Our God is a spirit. And we worship him in spirit. We worship him in truth. And by believing the truth and centering our lives around that truth, not being distracted with the shiny new thing or the religious plaything and toys, that's how we honor him. And there, there are multitudes of worshipers all over this, this, this world. They span, they span this world from continent to continent. But only a small portion of them can rightly be called true worshipers. Romans 10.10 says that, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The New Testament is clear. It's with the heart. We worship our, our, our God with our hearts, not with things. We worship the Lord with the truth of the gospel of Christ. We worship the Lord by being satisfied with him and him alone. And if you're one of God's precious children, one to whom Christ went to the cross and died a brutal and bloody death in order to save, know this, the Lord is after your heart too. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And their scriptures are just filled with these references to our hearts. In Proverbs 23, the Lord says, My son... Give me your heart. In Exodus 35.5, the Lord desires his people to have a willing heart, a heart that acts spontaneously and gladly, not out of necessity. And if someone told you that you had to be here tonight, and that's the reason you are here, that's not true worship. If you're here just for appearance's sake or just out of obligation going through the motions, I'm sorry to say, that's, that's idolatry. You're more concerned with your own self-image. You're essentially worshiping yourself, not the Lord of Scripture. But if you're here to listen with gladness and joy in your heart, this is what the Lord is after. Second Chronicles 34.27 says, Our hearts should be tender, yielding and willing to be molded by the Lord, not hard and stubborn. Psalm 34:18 says we should have a broken heart, sorrowing over our failures and our rebellion against God. 
Each of us should delight in all the scriptures and loving all of God's people in Christ. Our hearts should be sound, making sure that we get we are careful to get our doctrine and our, our practice of that doctrine correct. Our hearts should be merry and joyful. We should always be rejoicing in the Lord. And our hearts should be pure, hating sin and the evil that surrounds us. Our hearts should be honest. We should not be deceitful or hypocritical. Our hearts should be single-minded, desiring only the glory of God and not the pleasures of our flesh. Our hearts should be perfect, but they're not. Perfect's too tall an order for weak things like us, isn't it? We're such pitiful creatures, aren't we? Sometimes we can't even be happy when we wake up to another day. We wake up grumpy. You believe that? We ought to be thanking our Lord for giving us another day of life. But our flesh is more concerned with the honor and glory that we think we deserve. And our conscience struggles with the idol that we are born with ourselves. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 1. Paul has a lot of things to say here on idolatry. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them are also tempted and were destroyed as serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. <clears throat> flee from idolatry. We are to flee from idolatry, or we might just end up like the Israelites. Some of them were tempted, and they were destroyed by serpents. And you may think it's fun to play around with idolatrous things. But you may end up like the Israelites in the desert. Snake bitten, 
and did. God doesn't take idolaters lightly. Romans 5.8 says, God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 2 Peter 3.9 says that he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any of us should perish. Christ is not delaying his coming in hopes that every single person shall be saved. He's already declared that the multitudes of idolaters, multitudes of them, are going to hell. He's delaying his coming into all of us, that is, the elect, God's chosen people in Christ, are saved. Are you one of the us who shall trust in Christ? Or are you going to be one of the millions that tumble into hell? That's a question you need to ask yourself. And let's go a step further here. Not only does God not love all men, he actually hates some. Deuteronomy 32.19 says, He abhorred them. Psalm 5.5 says, Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. Psalm 11.5 says, Him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. And of course, we're all familiar with Romans 9.12, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And these passages have been generally shrugged off with the uh, ignorant cliche, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. I'm sure you've all heard that. It's quite common. It's a nice thought, I suppose, but it's unscriptural, and it's impossible. It's unscriptural because the scriptures declare that God hates the very person of the wicked. And it's impossible because sin is never found outside the sinner. Separate sin and sinner, and you have neither sin to hate or a sinner to love. Sin always exists in a man. And God even had to put the sin of God's elect upon his son before he could judge it. He put all the sins of his people upon Jesus Christ. And he poured out his full unmitigated wrath upon him, the man, not just the sin. And if you die in your sins, not trusting in the Lord, you'll learn the sobering thought is the truth. If you aren't one of Christ's people, know this, God hates you. And he despises the very sight of you. And he intends to put you in hell. And it's only his gracious long-suffering and forbearance that keeps you from the burning pit this very moment. He's not obliged to withhold his judgment another minute. But there is a kind of sinner that he cannot and will not despise. Psalm 51.17 says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Go ahead and read that psalm. See the deep repentance portrayed and the confession of guilt, the utter renunciation of self, and a thorough disgust of one's wicked ways, an earnest plea for mercy and cleansing from God, a heart turned from idolatry toward faith and rest in Christ. This is something God delights in. And we who believe... We love the gospel of Christ. We love true religion. But we can also get caught up with idolatry. 
And we don't play with idolatry. Don't play with it. Idolatry is dangerous business. Don't play with false religion. Stay away from it. Flee from it. And there may be no better witness to your loved ones that don't know Christ than to stay away from that which you consider to be false. No, I won't go to that church that practices will worship. No, I won't go to that church that engages in idolatry. No, I won't go to that place where men are exalted. I go here where the gospel of grace is proclaimed. And when you're asked, you tell them why. Let's continue uh, in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 10. I, I should have told you to keep your place if you have if you close your Bibles. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the, the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Paul's clear here. And we drink the wine and eat the broken bread. We're communicating to one another that we are partakers of Christ's blood and body and these symbolizing elements. We cannot drink the cup of Christ and also involve ourselves with false religion. To do so is to tell the world that we really, we don't really believe that which we say we believe. We're telling the world that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. We cannot hold hands with the world of false religion if our hearts have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. It's simply impossible. God won't let us go that way. And if we're truly God's people, our consciences will be burdened, will be turned from idolatry. And we'll turn to the only thing that our hearts, that gives our hearts the, the true rest it needs. We'll turn to Christ and Him alone. What else is better than Christ and His righteousness? What else is better than knowing that we, stand, we can stand before God, a holy God, without sin? Sure, we have the sin we carry around in our flesh, but objectively, we have no sin before God, only because of what Christ has done. We appear before his throne completely blameless, and we know that there is nothing we can do to merit his favor. Why would we want to add anything more to that? Why would we ever seek to add something to that? Why would we ever want to hold hands with a religious world that denies this. Why hold hands with those that even think we can do something to merit his favor? Is it, not a, is it not a denial of the grace of God to hold up another religion or an idol that denies these things? 
Is it not at least in some form a denial of Christ and a sacrifice to think it's okay to hold hands with those that deny the efficacy and the power of his finished work of redemption and substitution? We, we can't add anything to his work to merit his favor. We can't gain any favor by being baptized. We can't gain any favor by eating the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And those that think they get some sort of favor from God because they perform these ceremonies, well, they're deluded. We can't gain God's favor even by worshiping him here tonight. Why is that? Because we already have all the grace and favor in the world in Christ. We have it all already. Christ is all. We've got it all. And we don't need any more grace than what God has already given us. We, we, God's taken our cup and he's filled it to the top. We can't add any more to that cup. And, uh, but why do people try to add more to that? Why aren't people content with Christ's work alone? I'd say it's because God still hasn't changed their hearts. Maybe it's because they see, fail to see the wonder and the brilliance of Christ's atonement, Christ's amazing work on the cross. Or maybe it's because they just simply haven't been taught to rest. Men always think they've got to be doing something. We've got to run to the store and get food for dinner if we want to eat tonight, if we want to live. We need to form, get some form of employment so we can pay the mortgage on the home. We got to do this and we got to do that and we got to do all these things to sustain our lifestyle. But it's not this way with Christ. I suppose people just don't know that the best thing anyone anybody can do is just stop trying to do something and just rest. Just rest in Christ our Sabbath. And we rest knowing that everything has been taken care of by our elder brother. And we look to him as a child looks to a parent to take care of all of our needs. It really is that simple. We just look to Christ. We just look to him and we live. And when we sing his praises, we, we don't do this out of obligation. We do these things because we love him. We do these things because he's given us a new heart. And that's about all I got for tonight.